welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series uh, that you might be surprised to know we're in a sermon series in 1 Corinthians. It's been a while since we were in 1 Corinthians. Uh, If you took a break over Advent, you missed a sermon series in Revelation, um, so you might want to listen to that one. There were some wild times involved. Uh, But we are picking up back in a sermon series uh, we've been in this fall and will continue in this spring in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. You'll remember, uh, perhaps, that this is an early first century uh, community in the heart of the Roman Empire. It was a city, and increasingly it was a church, uh, where people were preoccupied with the things uh, that their culture ran after. Things like wealth and power and prestige. They began to jockey uh, against one another for for position, for accolades, for respect. And into that, Paul says, no, no. As a Christian church, you're to be marked not by uh, the culture around you, but by the cross of Jesus, where the way up is the way down, where the way to glory is the way of humility, where the way of love is the way of service and sacrifice. And so this morning, we are continuing uh, our look at 1 Corinthians uh, and reading together um, and studying 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. Well, this morning, uh, the passage that we've just read is obviously uh, one, not only of the most beautiful and well-known chapters of 1 Corinthians, uh, but perhaps one of the most well-known chapters of the Bible. 
Uh, if you have been to a wedding in your life, you have likely heard 1 Corinthians 13 read at some point. Uh, ironically, uh, it will be news to many of you that this was not a wedding homily. This is not uh, Paul's advice for married couples. Uh, in its context, this, this chapter doesn't have anything to do with marriage, except insofar as it has to do with everything. Uh, Paul is here writing about what he is telling us is the very center not only of our marriages, but of every bit of human life, that love is to be at the center of our lives, of our churches, because one day love will be at the very center of our world. This passage uh, has been the center of reflection for many of the greatest theological minds uh, in the world. In fact, uh, America's two greatest theologians, we're a young country, only a couple hundred years old, but we've produced really two theological minds that have, that have had an influence in the church around the world. Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century and Martin Luther King in the 20th century. Both of these men made 1 Corinthians 13 the center of much of their work, their reflection, and their writing. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan minister uh, in the 18th century in New England. And he was concerned that in his congregation, uh, it was full of people, many of whom professed to be Christians. Remember, in those days, uh, you were a Christian in the West by default. You grew up in the church. You might have grown up in the church. You might have uh, been, been even a giver to the church. And yet, Edwards looked out on his congregation and he said, there's many here who claim to be Christians, and yet their hearts don't really know by faith the love of God in Christ. And so he set out to preach a sermon series all out of this one chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. His sermon series was later published in one of his most widely read works called Charity and Its Fruits. In this book, he argued that love, love is the distinguishing mark of real Christianity. He draws on this from 1 John, where John tells us if you, if you don't have love, if you don't love your neighbor, then you don't know the love of God in Christ. He says, all that is distinguished and saving and true Christianity can be summed up and comprehended in love. If you look honestly, he was asking his church at their own hearts to see, do you love, do you love your neighbors? Do you love your enemies? Do you love God from the heart? He said it's possible to have much light or knowledge in the Christian life without any real heat or passion or love. And if that is the case, you should question whether or not you truly know the love of God in Christ. The picture that he paints is that the gospel is a fountain of God's love flowing into our hearts, changing our hearts, flowing out of our hearts towards our neighbor and ultimately filling this world. That was his take on 1 Corinthians 13. And then almost 200 years later, Martin Luther King Jr. came along. And he said, not only is love the distinguishing mark of the true Christian. But if we're to measure our lives against this kind of love, the kind of agape love that Paul talks about here, it has to also affect the way that we love those who are different than us, the ways that we live together in a society of love. 
And so painting the picture of this beloved community, he turned to this passage for what that must look like. He saw elements of 1 Corinthians 13 that Edwards and his contemporaries were blind to in their day. And so this is what King said in a sermon given in 1962 at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. King says, But when we rise to agape, to Christian love, it is higher than all other loves. It becomes the love of God operating in the human heart. The greatness of it is that you love every man, not for your sake, but for his sake. And you love every man because God loves him. And so it becomes all-inclusive. The person may be ugly, or the person may be beautiful. The person may be tall, or the person may be short. The person may be light, or the person may be dark. The person may be rich, or the person may be poor. The person may be up and in, or the person may be down and out. The person may be white, the person may be black. The person may be Jew, the person may be Gentile. The person may be Catholic. The person may be Protestant. In other words, you come to the point of loving every man, and it becomes an all-inclusive love. It's the love of God operating in the human heart, and it comes to the point that you even love the enemy. Christian love does something that no other love can do. It says that you love every man. And so what Edwards and King were both doing was situating love at the center of the Christian life, situating love at the center of the Christian community. And in doing that, they were, of course, just reflecting the priorities of Paul and the priorities of Jesus, right? Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 13 here for us, Paul, who elsewhere says that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Jesus, who when he was asked, what does the law say? What does God require of us? said only, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. Everything God wants for you is summed up in the command to love. And so let's look at this passage, this uh, passage that is really the Bible's richest, deepest, and most famous reflection on exactly what love is and what love does. Paul begins in the first three verses by listing out many of the gifts that the Corinthians were preoccupied with. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, and I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Remember, we've said of of what was going on in this Corinthian church, is that they had become preoccupied with the external markers of importance in the Christian church, and had come to believe that you could measure who was a good Christian and who was a bad Christian, who was a mature Christian, who was an immature Christian, by the external things of this world. That surely the most powerful and the most wealthy were doing something right and God must be blessing them in a special way so they may be the most mature. Or perhaps the wisest, the ones that Paul says here, have all knowledge and prophetic ability. These are people who who can understand the mysteries of theology, who can teach with eloquence. 
Maybe they were the ones who were to be respected. Maybe it was the ones with the supernatural gifts, those who could uh, speak in the tongues of men or of angels. Maybe it was the ones with the most missionary zeal, those who are willing to sell everything they have and even face martyrdom. Maybe these things were what made people truly matter, truly mature. And in the Corinthian church, they had started clamoring and competing for these things. No, I'm the best. No, I'm the greatest. I'm the most important. Remember at one point, uh, we saw in the fall that it had gotten to the point where they were, they were competing with each other uh, so much that the rich and the important were taking communion by themselves in a private room before the other people. And then the other people got what was left over. They got the, the rest after the important people had eaten. And so into that world, Paul says, no, no, you can do all of those things. Right? You might know all sorts of theology. You might have all sorts of passion and zeal. You might have all these supernatural gifts. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. If you don't have love, you're empty. In this world where they wanted so badly to be a somebody, Paul said, you're actually in danger of becoming a nobody. In this world where they all wanted to be something, Paul says, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And so he holds up to them this mirror and says, to really understand your life in Christ, you have to look past the external thing. Those things that you use to prove yourself and to compete with one another. And look, rather, to the heart. This is important for us to see. Because I think it's just as important for us in our day as it was for the Corinthians in their day to hear this message. That we cannot afford to settle for a vision of Christianity in the Christian life that's fixated on external things. Right, We, in contemporary Western Christianity, are just as prone to looking and chasing after power at all costs, to get our way in our world. We're just as prone to chasing wealth, believing that, that in our bank account lies our hope. We're just as prone to identifying ourselves with spectacularly gifted leaders, chasing after the people that we think Uh, are the best, the best speakers, the best leaders, the best communicators. We're just as likely to define our lives by external marks instead of looking to the heart. And it varies, of course, by church and by church tradition, right? In some churches, the the, the missionaries are held up as, as the true Christians and everybody else can fall in line after them. In some churches, and this is probably for the particular sin of, of, uh, Presbyterian and reformed bodies, The smartest people are assumed to be the most mature people, right? If you've read enough theology, if you've memorized enough things, if you have enough answers, then you're you're an A-team Christian and everybody else can be a B-team, right? In some charismatic or Pentecostal churches, it's the people that uh, can do the most spectacular things by faith, who can pray and people get healed, who, who claim to have prophetic powers. But in every church, there's something core, I think, to the human sinful nature that looks for a way to prove that some people are just a little bit better than others, that we're the best, others are a little bit down. And Paul says, no, no. No, Christianity is always marked by love. And if you have all of those other things, but are missing out on a heart of love, then you have nothing and you're in danger of becoming nothing. So he elevates it 
that it's important. It's not the only thing that matters, but without it, nothing else truly matters. And then he goes on to show us what this love entails, what real love is and looks like. That's what he's doing in verses 4 through 7. He tells us uh, what love is. I did joke uh, with Matt earlier and asked him, hey, could you play that great 1980s hymn where the hymn writer's foreigner asked the question, I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. Right? Because that is essentially, I will not sing it, um, but that is essentially what Paul's doing here. He's saying to the Corinthian church and through them to us, you do not know what love is. You think you know how to love, but you don't. You think you love well, but you love poorly. You think that you love generously, but you love self-protectively. And he says, you want to know what love is? Well, I'm going to show you. I will show you what love is and what love does. And so in verses 4 through verses 7, Paul lists out 16 descriptors of what love is and what love does. 16 different ways. He talks about what it is, what it does, what it isn't, what it doesn't do. And for the sake of time, we are not going to look at each one of these 16 descriptors. But let's just look at the first one. You want to know what love is? Love is patient. Love is patient. Some of the older translations translate patience as long-suffering. And truly, that's what patience is. Patience is the capacity to suffer for a long time for the sake of love. Patience is the willingness to bear with someone when they hurt you, when they offend you, when they step on your toes, when they're a blow to your pride, when you don't get your own way and you can't seem to get eye to eye. Patience is the love that hangs in there with people who don't seem to change. Patience is the love that hangs in there and cares for a sick spouse when they're not going to get any better. Patience is what hangs in there with difficult children and arrogant parents. Patience is what doesn't cling to getting your own way and making your own demands. It doesn't insist on getting even or taking revenge. Patience is the ability to suffer and to suffer long for the sake of love. So that's one out of 16. How are you doing? (laughs) How are you doing at the call to love with that kind of tenacious patience that that loves without an exit strategy, that loves without looking for a loophole or a way out? That's just one out of these 16. You see, what Paul shows us is that love is not only the most important thing that you're ever asked to do in this life, but it's also the most difficult thing you're ever asked to do. There's a part of us that we read Jesus' commands when he says all that God requires is that you love God and love your neighbor. There's a part of us that goes, okay, sweet. That's not so bad. I was worried there were going to be dozens and hundreds of things that I had to keep straight in my mind and remember to do. But if you actually probe into love and look at these 16 requirements of love, you begin to realize that you don't have a prayer. You don't have a prayer at loving the way that Jesus calls you to love, at the way that Paul calls us to love here. We mentioned earlier uh, two men that I listed as America's brightest theological minds who gave so much of their attention to talking about love and what it requires, Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther King. 
Jonathan Edwards wrote a book and spent decades teaching on love, and he was a slave owner. He owned eight slaves over the course of his life. There was never a time in his life where he did not own at least one enslaved African American. Martin Luther King, who led our nation with his moral courage and his opening up of love, had open and acknowledged extramarital affairs. Right? These things are not done to dis- I'm not saying these things in any way to discredit the legacy of either of these men, certainly not Dr. King, certainly not looking back 300 years at Jonathan Edwards. But simply to say, if these are our best, right, if these are our best minds, if these are some of our most courageous leaders, and they had blind spots, they had places where they fall short, and their blind spots were big enough that 200 years away, 300 years away, we can see them. What do we have? What chance do we have? What what if you were to ask the people closest to you in your life, how is Dave doing at love? How's he doing at patience and at kindness and at long-suffering and at endurance? You see, friends, if we substitute any one of our names where Paul puts love here, we make a mockery of these verses. If I were to try to read to you and say, I'll use myself as the guinea pig, Dave is patient and kind. Dave does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He doesn't insist on its own way. He's not irritable or resentful. If I hadn't blown it already by patience, uh, I've lost it now. Right? None of us can measure up to the call that these verses have. There's only been one man in this world who you could place in these verses and realize it's a description of his love and of his character. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Friends, when we look to the cross, we have a picture of what it looks like for love to endure all things. For love to cling to us with such patience and long-suffering that it's not even willing to let us go at the cost of life itself. Only Jesus is loved fully and loved perfectly. And this is the way uh, that Christianity works. 20th century theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar in his great little book, Um, love alone, says this, when man encounters the love of God in Christ, not only does he experience what genuine love is, but he is also confronted with the undeniable fact that he, a selfish sinner, does not possess that love. Right? When we see the love of Christ on the cross, we not only see what real love is for us, but we also have this realization, oh no, I've never loved another human being a day in my life. If that's what love is, if that's what love looks like at the extremes, then I am selfish and sinful and have never genuinely loved. And friends, this is the way that the gospel works. It lifts up what love really is. God teaches us love through showing us love and helping us to experience love. Right? These verses are a blow to our pride. Right? It does require us to take an honest inventory of our lives and say, I don't know what love is. 
It's a blow. But it's a blow of God's grace. It's what the French call, to finally get some mileage out of my high school French, a coup de grace. You might have heard that phrase. It means a blow of grace. It was first used to mean when someone would mercifully end the life of another injured in battle. But a coup de grace, it's a blow of grace. This verse is a blow to acknowledge that you don't love well. But it's a blow of grace. Because when you finally admit that you don't love well, neither God nor your neighbors, and certainly not your enemy, it opens you up to the grace of God. To learn what it means to be loved as an enemy. That Jesus, when he looked out from the cross, he wasn't dying for people who were his peers. He wasn't dying for his friends. He wasn't dying for people who had the same religious values and worldview that he had. The scriptures tell us that when we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. You have been the enemy of God. And he has given his life for yours. And in loving us that way, he actually begins to transform us towards love. That as we know what it means to be loved in that way, we actually are transformed so that we get new hearts that actually can begin to love others, that can begin to love as we have been loved. This is how the gospel works. We are loved so that we can begin to love. And in loving us this way, he brings us into a world where love eventually becomes all in all. Look at the way he closes this chapter. Love never ends. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it too will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. You know, every bit of the Christian life, Paul's saying, will eventually go away. He says that the three things that are the greatest, and these are, this is a hard verse to translate, but the three that are the greatest are faith, hope, and love, right? Faith eventually will turn to sight, right? Eventually, we will no longer follow Christ by faith. We'll see him. As he says here, we'll see God face to face. There will be no more need to walk by faith because we'll see and we'll know and we'll know God intimately in the fullness of his love. So faith will begin to fade away. Hope will reach its consummation, right? One day we will get that which we hope for, the new heavens and the new earth, a new body, a new life in this world. One day hope will no longer have hope because we'll have consummation. But love will never go away. Love is what we will spend eternity doing, looking at God face to face, loving him, exchanging love with our neighbors. When faith gives way to sight and hope finds its fulfillment, Love alone will be the practice of eternity. Jonathan Edwards, in that uh, great work, Charity and Its Fruit, in his last sermon, he titled it, Heaven is a World of Love. And in it he wrote, There in heaven, this fountain of love, this eternal three in one, is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory, in beams of love, there the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink at and to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world, as it were, in a flood of love. 
Edwards' logic is that if, if eternity is taken up with love, is lo- if love is what matters forever, then love is what matters most right now. Right? If love is what we are going to spend eternity engaged in, then love is worth practicing right now. Love is worth ordering our lives around right now. As you think about, as we all uh, tend to do at the beginning of a new year, as you think about how 2019 might be different than 2018, and we start making resolutions, eat a little less, exercise a bit more, read more books, watch less TV, those kind of things. Remember that if our, the question we ought to be asking ourselves is what does it look like for me to order my life around love of God and love of my neighbor? What does it look like for me to order my entire life as much as possible, evermore, not around myself, my convenience, my ambitions to look better, but my love for God and my love for neighbors? What would it look like for me to spend my time and my energy around love of God and love of neighbor, to leverage my, my money and my home around love of God and love of neighbor? How would I treat my technology? How much time would I spend on my cell phone in light of love of the neighbor who's actually physically in front of me? in this moment, in light of my love of God and my devotion to him. Love alone is what matters. Everything else will pass away. Michael and Linda Joyce are a Scottish couple uh, living in New Zealand. Michael uh, has early onset Alzheimer's. At 68 years old, he's begun to lose most of his memories. He's beginning to lose touch of some of his speech, starting to not remember Uh, the people closest to him. One day, he even forgot that he was married to his wife of 38 years. But one thing he did know is that he loved her. And so as an honorable man, he looked at this woman that he loved, and he knew that he loved, and he asked her to marry him, proposing again to his wife of 38 years. Linda, in an interview, said, in that situation, you don't say, oh, honey, we're already married. She said in an interview, Of course I will, thinking that he might not remember. But the next morning, Michael woke up and asked her, so when are we doing this? According to the magazine she did this interview with, uh, she invited her friends and her community to their second wedding. She wrote them an invitation and said, my adored hubby of 38 years suffers from Alzheimer's. Two nights ago, out of the blue, with tear-filled eyes, he asked me to marry him. Michael had clearly forgotten that we were already married, but I absolutely went along with him and said I would be delighted to be his wife. In spite of his confused mind, he obviously knows and feels this is something he really wants to do. To Michael, it will be our wedding ceremony, and to our friends and to myself, a truly precious and memorable occasion. On the morning of their wedding, Linda woke up not sure he would remember. But he woke up and told his betrothed, today's the day. And this beaming couple stood in front of their friends around a lake in New Zealand. She said, there's been a lot of sadness and a lot of frustration, Linda said. And despite all the fogginess, today has been pure joy. Friends, there's not much that this life can't take from you. Uh, Some of you know that in a hard way. This life can take your money. uh, It can take your health can take your closest relationships. What Paul lifts up here is that the gospel opens a world where the most real thing about you is love, where the most real thing about you is knowing. As the Song of Song puts it, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. 
and opens up the possibility that when all else is taken away, when all else fades, you can know that you know in your heart that you love and that you are loved. And that is something about you that whatever this life brings, it will never diminish. It can never be taken from you. In fact, into eternity it will only grow as faith gives way to sight, as hope finds its fulfillment. Love, love, love. The most excellent way that Paul lays out here will last forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so prone to look for our meaning and our significance and our value in what we do or what we accomplish and what other people think that we are, even of what we think of ourselves. Lord Jesus, we pray that more and more the most real and genuine thing about us would be that we know that we are loved and that we know that we love in return. Lord Jesus, we will spend eternity learning what it means that we are our beloveds and our beloved is ours. But we pray that today, here and now, we would come to know that more and more. We would come to see more and more the depths of what love is and what love does as we look at the cross, as we look at your life poured out for ours, at love nailed to the tree. Lord, we pray that in that love, we would find our life, we would find our hope, we would find our peace, and that we too would learn to walk in the most excellent way of love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to continue to worship God uh, now through both singing uh, to him and giving our offering. Truly, uh, worship and giving are both acts of love. They're not meant to be acts of compulsion or acts of guilt, something you do because you think you're supposed to, uh, but acts of love out of hearts that know that they've been loved. And so let's stand as the beloved of God and respond to his love through singing and giving. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice 
Yes, Jesus does, in fact, love us. Uh, He loves us, broken as we are, sinful though we are. He loves us uh, as we come to his table. Wherever you've been this week, some of us are tired, some of us are feeling afflicted by guilt, some of us wrestling for another week with doubt and unbelief. But Jesus loves us. He loves us as we are. And he loves us, uh, we know, not only because the scriptures tell us so. Of course, the scriptures uh, are the ground and bedrock of our faith. But we also are given to know his love this meal. A time when he not only tells us that he loves us, but he reminds us with something tangible, something that we can taste and touch and see. He invites us uh, to this table. We come empty-handed, we come hungry and we come thirsty. We come needing him to fill us with his grace and his presence. And so that's what we are going to do now. This table is open uh, to all people who have recognized their need of a Savior and have trusted Christ as the Savior of sinners. If that's you, you're welcome to come and to eat. You don't have to be a member of this church, simply a member of Christ by faith. If you're with us today and that's not you, uh, you've still got deep uh, questions and doubts around Christianity. We are so incredibly glad that you're here. We're honored, in fact, that you would trust us with your questions. We hope that you will keep coming back, uh, but the scriptures tell us that you should wait to join us around this table until you can do so in a common faith, and we hope that day is very, very soon. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, we declare the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you did come for us to give your life for ours. We thank you, Lord, that you did rise from the grave victorious over sin and death, and that we know that in you we too have new resurrection life. And we thank you that you will come again. Lord, that every broken thing in our lives will be set right. Every fragment of this world will be knit back together, whole and healthy again. And so, Lord, until that day, we come to you needy, we come to you sinful, we come to you struggling, and we eat and drink by faith, trusting you by your very presence to fill us and to sustain us by your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.